Well, that was awesome. Thank you so much, team. Well, good morning, everyone. Morning. Thanks for the feedback. I appreciate that. Uh, it's good to be here. It's Labor Day, and uh, Labor Day has kind of become a bit of a tradition for me. Uh, the first time I ever spoke here was on Labor Day, and I wasn't even on staff yet. And uh, this is the fifth one, so I'm looking forward. I'm just honored to be here with you today. Uh, how many know, and I always start with this, every single year I'm predictable. Uh, how many of you know there's a football game happening today? Anyone? So no starting quarterback, no starting running back, wide receiver one likely cut. Who's going to win? Is this Saskatchewan's game? Oh, wow. Bold. I like that. That's brave. Or is it Winnipeg's game? Anyone? Woo! All right, go Bombers, even though, you know, I'm speaking faith as I say that, right? But uh, should be a good one this morning. But my name's Jordan, and I'm the adult ministry pastor here at Soul Sanctuary. And uh, honestly, today, it's just going to be good to continue to look in the book of Matthew at the end times stories. Um, as Jesus is about to tell us a couple of stories this morning about what this will look like for his followers. And so I've titled this message, Jesus plus Kingdom Responsibilities. And just remember that word, responsibility. We're going to be coming back to that today. But Jesus spoke in parables. And basically, parables were stories that taught a point. Parables were stories that weren't just given for the sake of it, but it was an illustration. It was used to teach a point. And so this morning, we're going to look at how these stories illustrate and give us some indication as to what Jesus' return will look like. But probably more than anything, what does that mean for us as Christians and as people who will follow him? And so let's pray quick, and we're going to get into this today. Father, I just thank you uh, for this morning and for each person in this room. I pray, God, you'd speak to us today through your word. Uh, keep us from what would be my thoughts, Lord. Give us your truth. And uh, yeah, just encourage us and challenge us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Matthew chapter 25, and we're going to start at verse 1. If you have your Bibles, your phones, or you can look to the screens, it's up there. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five of them were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oils in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy, and they fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day nor the hour. So we're going to look at two stories this morning. But in this first story, they're waiting for a wedding. Any fans of weddings here? You just enjoy them. You have fun. You appreciate them, right? They're waiting for a wedding. Now, some of us immediately think when we read through this, you think to yourself, they're waiting for a wedding, and yet they fall asleep at night waiting for a wedding? Like, what kind of wedding is this? 
What kind of wedding is happening here where people are waiting for it to start and yet they're passing out close to midnight, right? Uh, it's just different in our culture. It's not something that we'd be used to. But we have to recognize that each culture is different and we have different expressions and our normal here for a wedding in Canada looks very different from what they experience in, in these biblical times. And so uh, later evening weddings with torchlight processions were certainly common and often involved several stages, which meant some waiting, which required some patience, which in North America we're awesome at, right? Right? High-speed internet, fast food, you know, Uber this, right? You know, we, we, we want things quick, we want things now, but this, waiting for this type of wedding would require patience. You know, a 6 p.m. starting time in our culture we expect it to start at 6 p.m., and if it doesn't, we're all looking at our watches thinking, where are we going to go here? But a 6 p.m. starting time of this, uh, in, in this culture couldn't be taken too seriously at all, and you couldn't be that committed to it. For it wasn't about the precise time, but it was all about the timing of the ceremony. And those who waited for it waited patiently, and they were respectful of the process that was at hand. And so that just kind of explains to you why people are passing out here waiting for a wedding ceremony in case you're kind of left and you're wondering, well, what is with that? Like, that seems like an interesting start. But here we have a story of 10 virgins or 10 bride bridesmaids, some translations call it. And they're waiting for the bridegroom to arrive. And immediately in verse 2, we read that five of them were wise and five of them were foolish. You know, the Bible doesn't really mince words here. Jesus doesn't mince words when he's talking here. Five just had their lamps with them, but they brought no oil with them. But the other five brought their lamps, and they brought extra oil jars, reserves, if you will, to make sure that they would be prepared and ready for the bridegroom's appearance. And this proved to be very wise, because the bridegroom was taking longer than expected, and really, they fell asleep in waiting for the bridegroom's arrival. And so this is kind of funny, because when we look back at Matthew chapter 24, and uh, the passage Pastor Jordan Michalski taught on last week very well, um, it's interesting, because the story and portion there was about the master coming too soon, right? And so we're sitting here waiting. Uh, Jesus will come like a thief in the night. Uh, it's just going to happen. It's going to happen quick. It's going to happen soon. And now we're at this story, which is actually talking about the master coming later than expected. And so Jesus is putting a couple thoughts in our head as we look through this stuff. Either way, the point is this, is that we should not give too much time dwelling on the exact date or the exact time or hour of the master's arrival, but our priority is to make sure that we are ready for it and to be ready for it. And so continuing in the story, the bridegroom arrives at midnight and the bridesmaids get up, they trim their lamps, and here we see the problem that is about to be faced. And it's that five of them were prepared well in advance for this moment. And for them, this is okay. They got extra oil. They're good to go. It's going to happen. Um, even though they were sleeping, they're still prepared here. But the other five are left scrambling at the arrival. And they're unprepared for the arrival of the bridegroom. And so the obvious question that people ask here is, is people often ask the question, well, what is the oil anyways? What does the oil stand for? You ever thought that before? What is the oil anyways? And so many uh, commentators, many uh, church uh, theologians throughout history have given opinions on what possibly that oil could stand for. Perhaps it's talking about good work, some would suggest, um, or faith could be talking about faith. Um, some suggest it's talking about love or any of the other Christian virtues or fruit. 
Um, but the truth is, is this, is that it is probably wrong to try to guess what the oil is in this story to begin with. Because that's not the point here. The point of the story we are about to see is simply about being ready. Being prepared, being wise, thinking ahead, realizing that a crisis is coming sooner or later. And if you don't prepare for it now, you're going to have some regrets later. And so five of them are scrambling at this point, and they're looking for oil, and they recognize that they weren't prepared. And those who have oil, they can't really lend them any. Otherwise, um, it might jeopardize them. It might jeopardize their supply that they prepared for in advance. And, 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 and so the five who had no oil, they take off in like this last-second effort to go and find some, go and see if they can buy some at this time and hour at night. But while they're away, the party starts. And those who were ready, those who were prepared, go in. And the story tells us that the door is shut. The other five do end up showing up later. Perhaps after tracking down some oil. We can only guess that's probably what happened. But they are met with this tough reality once they arrive at the door. That the door is shut and they've been left out of this party. And Jesus gives this warning to keep watch because we do not know the day or the hour. And he's obviously using this story to point to his coming return. And so a couple observations from this story. First, you see, to enter this kingdom, one not only has to accept the invitation to be a bridesmaid or have an experience, But you must also prepare for it by bringing reserves, or maybe more importantly for us, actively living out our faith, is how we can apply this here. You see, it's one thing to wait for the bridegroom, but it's another to prepare for the bridegroom's coming. This is supposed to be something that we're consciously and continually aware of, that while we wait for Christ to return, we need to be in preparation mode. We always need to be in preparation mode daily. And five of them in this story were called foolish because they didn't prepare. And they were caught off guard, and they were surprised by this. Anyone ever been caught off guard before? Anyone ever been surprised about something before, right? Something you're expecting, something you're not expecting, and you're like, oh my gosh, that that really caught me by surprise. You know, I don't know about you, but for me, it, it feels like the worst being unprepared for something. Sometimes it's shocking because sometimes we don't even realize it, that, oh my goodness, I should have been, I should have been ready for this. And I wasn't. And that's the shock of the five who didn't have the oil. You know, they're, they're, they're caught off guard by this. The door's shut and they can't get in to the party. Secondly, my second thought that I have from this story is that when the time comes, there will be no time to borrow from others, but you need to make sure that you have prepared. When the time comes, when the arrival comes, there's no time to borrow from anyone. But you need to make sure that you've taken the responsibility to be prepared. At the return of Christ, we cannot depend on others for our salvation. I could say it like that. But each one of us needs a personal and active relationship with Jesus ourselves. I've heard it said like this before. You cannot live off of someone else's spiritual journey. You cannot live off of someone else's intimacy with God. You cannot piggyback off of someone else's acts of service. Each of us is responsible for our own. 
And we cannot claim association to our family or to other believers. You know, it's not going to be one of those moments where you could be like, well, my family did this in the church or, you know, we have a long history of this or, or this is happening. But we need to have our own active relationship with Jesus. And this is the grace that is offered to each of us. You see, meeting Jesus and receiving forgiveness of our sins really is grace. And not only are our sins forgiven, but then we're invited to be a part of what he's doing in the world. Ephesians 2 says it like this. It says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. This is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And all of this is an act of grace. All of it. The fact that we get to be a part of this is, is, is God's grace on our life, friends. You see, when we experience God's grace, we are saved, and this is not of our own doing in any way. And so I want to caution here. There is no works righteousness. And I want to point that out here in this parable in case we get tempted to go that route and start thinking that way here. But the Bible says we are his handiwork or his workmanship, and we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for each one of us to do. More on that in this upcoming story, but the point is this, that the Christian experience is not just one single moment when you say a prayer. That's your starting point. But it is a new way in which we are now new creations, and we are free to live in a new way that Jesus has taught us to live each and every day. And so there is a responsibility on each of us to be prepared and to make sure that we don't take the coming of the king lightly. And this is important, I think, because it, it's easy sometimes to slack off and to kind of check out and to quit paying attention to, you know, God's, uh, God's work and God's demands and to be unprepared when this moment comes, this moment of arrival. But the truth is this, is that there is a responsibility on each of us to be prepared and to be living for him daily as we anticipate his arrival. That's what the parable of the ten virgins is teaching us. Be ready. Be prepared. Whatever that looks like, be living with him. Have that active living relationship with Jesus. And so Jesus tells us a story about what this possibly could look like in this next part this morning. And we know this story as the parable of the talents or the parable of the bags of gold, as the NIV calls it. But before we read it, let me just drift here for a moment, okay? And just segue into something just a little bit different. Because I want to illustrate something that I think will really uh, open things up for us. It's something that trips us up often, I think, as we try to live our lives for Jesus. And it's this. There is a collective cry that each and every one of us has experienced at some point in our lives in this room. Usually it's very early as kids. <laughs> it happens earlier than later. We experience this regardless of where we're from, regardless of our nationality, regardless of our culture. Um, each one of us gets to experience this feeling, and it's uttered in three words. That's not fair. Everyone say your neighbor, that's not fair. Okay. We all understand this. We can all relate with this. We've all uttered this before. We've all thought this at some point in our life. And kids, 
everywhere say this. I heard it this weekend, you know, with my daughter hanging out with her, with her cousin, right? That's not fair. And we all experience moments. For me, it was likely, probably for me, it was likely at daycare, you know, when my piece of cake wasn't as big as everyone else's. And I took great note of that. And I was wondering, well, why is their cake double mine, right? When really maybe there was that much more, right? But, or someone gets a great opportunity that I don't, and I'm sitting there thinking, well, why didn't I get that opportunity? Why did, what, what makes them able to have that and not me? No matter what the specifics are, we all experience this feeling at some point in our life where we feel that things are not fair. And here's an interesting thing about feeling this way. Is, is, is that I am usually only concerned about fairness <laughs> when my piece of the cake is the smallest piece of cake, right? I'm usually only concerned about fairness when my piece of cake is the smallest piece of cake. But when my piece of cake is the largest piece of cake, I just say, thank you, God, for your grace and favor upon my life, right? <laughs> Amen, Lord. Don't we do that? I think we do that sometimes. I know I do. Think about it this way. Let me illustrate it like this. There's four people who are all qualified, all gifted, all interviewing for a job and a promotion at their workplace, okay? And all four of them have qualifications. All four of them have talents. All four of them have abilities. And all four of them are waiting for, you know, just that you got the job answer. And the person, one, one of them ends up getting the job. And so that person goes home to their family and friends and probably say something like this, you know, thank God he answered my prayer. This is amazing. I got the job. I got the promotion. And you give thanks, and that's great, and you should do that. But let me tell you probably something you never do, okay? You probably never sit there with your family and friends and say that life is so unfair after this happens. You know, that there was this one job, and four people wanted it, and I was the one who got it. Man, life is unfair. It's so unfair to those other three. I feel terrible. I feel awful, right? You probably don't do that as easily as you celebrate what you've been given. But it's possible that somewhere else in the same city, there are three families or groups of people with friends sitting around and probably thinking to themselves, well, this is unfair. Why didn't I get it? I worked hard. I prepared. I did what I can. Why didn't I get the promotion? And here is what is probably true of most of us when it comes to fairness. You see, I'm only concerned about fairness in life when I fall on the short end of the stick. That's usually when I bring it up. That's usually when that emotion rises up to the top and you begin to experience it and interact with it a bit. When things are going my way, I, I, half the time I don't even think about fair. I don't know about you. But when they don't go our way, we go there. And when we say life is not fair, what we are really saying is this. We're saying life isn't even. Life is not even. Things aren't even. And this can become a crutch and this can become a slippery slope for us because the unfairness of life or the unevenness of life can quickly become an excuse for irresponsibility if we're not careful. We can very easily leverage this towards acting out irresponsibly if we're not careful. You know, we can start thinking things like this. Yeah, you know what? Hey, you know, you got more. You got that nice car. You got that job. You got that promotion. You got the extra. And so now you got to pick up more of the work. We can easily find ourselves thinking that way. 
Because you got some of my fair share, you got more than me, so now you must do more. But don't do that. Don't think that way. Because if you do, what you end up doing is you begin a spiral where you will never be happy. And where you'll never find contentment. And the only person that's going to hurt is you. Benjamin Franklin said this. He that is good at making excuses is seldom good at anything else. Ouch. Think about that. He that is good at making excuses is seldom good at anything else. This is true because when you make excuses, what you do is you begin to excuse yourself. And then there's the opposite side of that. And the opposite side of that can be another danger you could have with all this stuff is that the more, of have, the, more you, the more of something that you have, the more you can also waste what you have. So there's two extremes we could look at here when it comes to fairness. You know, you can use your extra and your benefit as an excuse to be irresponsible if you want to. And so what will you choose? You see, the issue isn't whether life is fair or whether life is even. The issue is what will I do with what I have been given with the opportunity that God has given me. That's a real issue. Because the more you focus on the unfair and uneven part of life, the more you will be tempted to excuse responsibility because of what someone else does or doesn't have. And what's cool is that Jesus taught on this. And so we're going to look at a story that's going to illustrate this for us today. Jesus is continuing to tell us what the kingdom of heaven is like, and Jesus gives a parable about God's perspective of the unevenness or the unfairness of life, if I can say it like that. And this is known as the parable of the talents or the parable of the bags of gold. Now, a talent was a measure of money. The Greek word for talent is talentos. It's literally where we get our English word talent from. It literally derives out of this. This is where we get it from. And we will use the word talent and bags of gold kind of interchangeably today. So if I say one or the other, forgive me. I mean the same thing. But Jesus is taking something cultural and he teaches a lesson about how God views the unevenness of life. And so remember this. When Jesus gave a parable, he would often speak in extremes to make his point known. He would often say things that were quite extreme and left the audience going like, who would do that, right? Like you think of the parable of the prodigal um, son and he asks his father for his inheritance. That, that's how Jesus starts the parable. Like no one asks their father for their inheritance while the father is alive, right? That the audience would have just gasped at that. That would have been unheard of. That would have been like saying, father, you're dead to me. Give me my money, right? But Jesus speaks in extremes in these parables to make his point known. And so let me quickly tell you about the end of this parable that we're going to read. A little spoiler alert here, okay? Is that at the end of the parable, God doesn't try to fix the unevenness of life. But God wants and expects us to leverage it. So let's start reading. Matthew chapter 25. I'm going to go by this a couple of verses by a couple of verses, because I always like to interject between them. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and then to another one bag, each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. And so the scene is set here. The master is going to go on a journey, and he invites three of his servants and decides to entrust all of his wealth to them. 
The master will split up his wealth among the three servants, and he expects those servants to do with his wealth what he would do as if he were managing it himself. Now, let's make that point clear as we start reading. He's not giving it to them to simply guard or to simply protect. But he's giving it to them to manage and to invest and to leverage and to make more. We need to be clear on that this morning. And so what does a talent or a bag of gold symbolize in this story? Well, a talent could be silver, could be gold. The NIV used the translation gold. A talent, though, basically was a lot of money. It was basically 20-year payoff, 20 years of work, okay? If you were a day laborer, a talent was huge. It was an enormous amount of money. And one single talent was worth so much in these days. And so when Jesus tells this parable, he's saying these guys are given a lot, every single one of them. And the master distributes the talents or bags of gold to his servants, each according to their ability. Now we need to point out the elephant in the story here before we keep going. That this wasn't even as we would call things even. He gave one person five bags, he gave another person two, and another person got one bag of gold. And some immediately read this and go, well, that's not fair. And of course, Jesus goes, you know, this didn't even happen. I'm telling a story here, guys, okay? Stick with me as we do this. But, but you know, some of them would say, that's not fair. And we may say that they didn't get the same amount, and that's not fair. But then again, on the other hand, is it okay if someone with wealth decides how they distribute it? Isn't that fair to them? Isn't that fair in their case? You see, one of the life lessons in life we're going to learn is that everything's fair to someone, right? And so let's just keep going here. Verse 16 says this. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. And so he put the money to work, gained five more, because he knew that's what his master had expected him to do. Verse 17. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. And so we're seeing good investment happening here. Give him five, five more. Give him two, two more. There's good payoff happening here. Verse 18. But the man who had received the one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. He hid his master's money. He didn't invest it at all, but he hid it. Now, why would anyone do that? Well, we're going to find out shortly why he did that. But in verse 19, we read this. After a long time, let me emphasize that again. Long time. The master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. Now, I emphasize long time because remember the parable of the virgins that we just looked at. It took a long time for the coming, for the arrival. And so that's important here. And they likely wonder, you know, if he's even coming back at all. But he came back, and he came back to settle accounts with them. And settled accounts means he didn't expect them to guard his gold and bring it back to them. Settled accounts means that he wanted to see what they did with the gold he gave them. The master wanted to see what kind of return they got on managing his money as he asked them to. And so how did they do? How did things go for them? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 20. The man who had received the five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. 
you know, a few things. Jesus' audience probably, when they heard that, would have thought, you know, that, that's a lot that he had there. Because you were in charge with a few things, the master said, I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Great job. Let's look at the next person. Verse 22. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. Same thing as the other guy. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And so the same thing happens with the person who is entrusted with the two bags of gold. But after this, if there was a soundtrack to this parable, okay, like if there was music playing in the background and we're watching this on a TV, okay, this is where the music would change, all right? This is where uh, you'd get that dark, suspenseful music, you know, that, mm, like, you know, someone's going to die, right? That's probably what we think when we watch movies. That's what's happening here. The music's going to change because who's up next? Well, the guy with the one bag is up next, and he's coming to give account. You know, the guy with the one bag of gold who likely has dirt and mud all over him because he heard his master was coming and he had to go dig that thing up and pull it out of the ground, right? And we're about to see what I would call, or what a commentator called, an example of first century whining here, okay? When we look at this. Because very subtly in his explanation, rather than own responsibility with what he did, he actually starts to blame the master for it. And so let's read it. In verse 24. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man. Harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went out and I hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. And his master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers. So that when I returned, I at least would have received it back with interest. And so this guy has a different attitude about this. He has a different perspective. And much of it is in how he sees his master. It starts off with the view that he has of his master, right? He says, you are a really tough guy to work with. You intimidate me. So I was afraid because of you. And so this is actually kind of your fault. Because you are the way you are. And he points blame here rather than owning it and taking responsibility for what he did. I know that you're a hard man. You see, he had this understanding of his master that prevented him from seeing the responsibility and gift that was given to him here. Anyone ever misunderstood someone before? Ever had a bad view of someone and then you, you only realize that they're awesome later on in life? Anyone watch the movie Home Alone? I just felt like this was an easy illustration. Story of Kevin thinks this guy's a, a killer on the road, right? Always uh, shoveling salt all over the ground. And uh, there's stories going around about this older gentleman, only to find out that he's actually one of the nicest neighbors anyone could possibly have. I think sometimes we misunderstand things. I think sometimes we have misunderstandings of who people are. And friends, this becomes especially dangerous. And I'm going to interject here for a moment. If that is our, if we have a misunderstanding of who God is to us, that's going to hinder our ability to be able to live for him. And to be able to follow him. You see, A.W. Tozer said it like this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. How we view God has such implications for how 
we can serve him. The Jesus that we see very much determines the type of Christian that we'll be. And this servant had a real strong view on how tough his master was to deal with. Maybe he was jealous that he only got one talent. Maybe he didn't feel included. Who knows? We can only speculate on what led to this. But the master says, you went and buried the money not because you were thinking about me and my interests. But because you were lazy and you wanted to take the easiest way out. You know, it would have been better for you to try and then failed, but you did nothing. And now you want to blame me for your own laziness, is essentially what this conversation would sound like in our time. If you knew I was that difficult, if you thought I was a hard man, then why didn't you at least put it on deposit with the bank? At least I could have got some interest out of it that way. But you were too lazy to even do that, and now you want to blame me for, for not doing anything and just burying it and doing nothing with it. And this is a take-home for us this morning. And so I'm going to jump the gun here and say it. God didn't give us his grace, friends, so that we could just bury it and ignore it, but so that we can be at work in his kingdom. So that we can be at work in his kingdom. Verses 28 to 30, let's keep going. This is what he says. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Take the bag, the one bag, and give it to the, the one who has ten, ten bags. Well, that's not fair, we probably think to ourselves, but that's not the point. You see, Jesus says in verse 29, for those who have been responsible with what they've been given, they will have an abundance and will be given more. And for those who weren't responsible, even what they have will be taken from them. And you know, in verse 30, we read that part about throw them outside where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And preachers sometimes love to use this verse and just really get hellfire and brimstone on you here. And just really like, you know, this is some preachers just love this kind of stuff and love talking about it. But a more likely translation here is that weeping and gnashing of teeth in the New Testament was actually a sign of frustration and deep regret. It was a sign of regret and frustration. This guy had a golden opportunity, and then he wasted it. He was in the inner circle, and then he blamed his master for his lack of obedience. You see, weeping and gnashing of teeth is used in Scripture often as a sign of frustration, as a sign of regret. In Acts chapter 9, when they stoned St Stephen, the Bible says the people were gnashing their teeth as they did this. There was frustration. There was an anger happening as this was going on. Now, I'm not going to completely say that this doesn't involve judgment, because that would be limiting the point severely. But clearly, here is a guy who will realize that he's blown it. And he's thrown out of the inner circle that he was brought into. And there's going to be great frustration. And there's going to be deep regret involved for this, this person. And so what is Jesus' point when he talks here? Well, his point is that everyone gets an uneven amount of opportunity. And everyone gets held accountable for what they do with it. And everybody has this privilege. The responsibility to someday give account for what they did with their uneven amount of opportunity. You see, this opportunity that we've all been given, different amounts for different times of life, isn't even ours. It's been given to us on loan. Our time, talents, and treasures have been given to us on loan. Our responsibility on our end is to figure out how to leverage it to its maximum. 
And you know what? There are some people who have five bags of opportunity, some with one and some with two. And we all fall into one of these categories somewhere. And some of us, we just look at those people with five bags of gold. We look at the five bags of gold people and they just annoy us. And they frustrate us. And we think to ourselves, well, why did they get it all? Why does everything come so easy to them? Why do they have so much, etc.? And we can, if we're not careful, we can become jealous of that. But you know what can happen to these people who receive five bags of gold on the other hand? Is that they could just take it all for granted if they're not careful. They could just think, well, that comes natural to me. I do that, I do that in my sleep, right? And they could take it for granted if not careful. And then there are people who look at their lives compared to others and figure that they don't have a lot going for them. We have, you know, you just have one bag of gold, one talent, and you get discouraged and you quit easy because of it. And then there's many of us who would fall somewhere in the middle with the question for us is this, what are you going to do? Not with what he has or what she has or what they have, but what will you do with what you have? What will you do with what God has entrusted to you. Because the tendency is to always look at everyone else and look at what they do or don't do and make excuses for what we will do and what we won't do. The point of the story is this. You need to look at your bag of gold and decide how to leverage it to its fullest and refuse to either take it for granted because it comes easy for you, that you waste it, or excuse yourself because you don't seem to have what somebody else has. You see, the extra that any of us have is an opportunity that we are responsible for. God doesn't give it to us so that we can just relax and take it easy and bury it and sit on it. But you are responsible for what you've been given. And let me just say this, and it's always bigger than yourself. It's always bigger than you. Investing it always has bigger implications than for your life, but it affects those around you. You see, the issue in all this at times is it's so easy to focus on what we don't have rather than what we do have. And so often we live with that, you know, if only someday we had that phase, right? Then I'd be ready for this. If only I had that, then this would be said. If only I had that, then this would happen. But living there means we run the danger, friends, of burying and sitting on our talent or bag of gold and doing nothing with it. And so it's easy to get jealous of five-talent people because they seem to have it all. But you know what's funny when you think about this? I was thinking about this this past week. I went to a couple movies this week. Um, our favorite stories are usually about the one-talent people, aren't they? Right? Our favorite stories are usually about one-talent people. You know, People that, you know, don't seem to have a lot, don't seem to have a lot to contribute, but they do something amazing and they rise up and they put what they have to work and something awesome happens. And those are the stories that we like telling, aren't they? And we see amazing things happen in their lives through their investment and through their hard work. And what it comes down to is this. You simply look at what you've been given and you figure out how to leverage it for all it's worth. Because you are a Christian for the sake of God's kingdom if you have chosen to follow him. And for the sake of something bigger than yourself. Because yourself is too small to waste your entire life on. It just is. You don't, need, you don't, you don't read great stories about people who just spent their whole lives on themselves. There's nothing inspiring about that. 
You don't read stories or go to movies about people who spent their whole life making excuses and backing out of things. There's no hero there. There's nothing to celebrate in that story. But the challenge for you, and really the challenge for me here this morning when we read through this story, is to recognize that what we've, what we've been given isn't even ours to begin with. We are simply managing what the king has given to us. And so what are we going to do with that? We can look around, we can make excuses, or we can look and see what is in our hand. What has been given to us by our Father in heaven? And we can leverage it for the sake of something bigger than ourselves. See, I think the most important verse is verse 19 in this passage. Because it says, after a long time, the master of the servants returned to settle accounts. And the truth is that each one of us will, will get to give an account for our lives. And it can be a great thing as depicted in this parable. Or it can be that moment in your life where you're trying to excuse yourself because of something you think God did to you or that God did for someone else and didn't do for you. Because here's the deal. We all have some time, but we have uneven amounts of time. We all have some opportunities, but we have uneven amounts of opportunities. We all have talents, but uneven amounts. And to be a person and say, I am taking responsibility to my life is to be an individual who takes responsibility for all the opportunities that come your way and that God brings your way. I'm not going to take that for granted. I'm not going to make excuses. I'm not going to compare myself to everyone around me and what he's doing, she's doing, what they're doing. Because the bottom line is simply this. To whom something is given, something is required. And it's when we embrace that through the lens of a God who loves us and who's cheering for us and who empowers us and who has given us these opportunities that we'll begin to be serious about taking full responsibility for our lives and leveraging all that he's given us. You see, a parable like this has very practical implications for how we leave here today and live. I think of Moses. I think of Moses in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. Early in his ministry, he was worried. He was concerned. He was timid. He had no idea how he was going to carry out God's command. Sometimes it's scary. Sometimes we feel unqualified. We've all been there. And it's his question and stresses that he expresses to God. And he tells God, you know, what if they don't listen to me? What if no one's going to follow me? What if they don't trust me on this? And God simply looks at him in Exodus 4.2. Then the Lord said to him, asks him this question. What is that in your hand? What is in your hand? And in his case, it was a staff that when he threw to the ground, it turned to a snake. And God was going to use that in a way that would give credibility to his words. And if you read through the story, it's very cool. Check out Exodus 4 later when you're, you know, reading in scripture. But if I asked you that this morning, if you were timid, if you were a bit afraid, if you're a bit fearful, if I asked you that question this morning, what would your answer be to what is in your hand right now? What has God given you? What talents has he given you? What kind of time has he given you? What kind of treasure has he given you? What is in your hand? Because whatever that is, God can move in that. God can work through that. God can use you in that to do amazing things all for his glory. And all for his kingdom. And so I ask the question. Can some of us this morning maybe identify with Moses? And you feel timid and you feel unqualified. And you, you, you maybe think to yourself sometimes, you know, God, you're asking the wrong person here. You see, the beauty of Moses' story 
as you read further, is that you see how God used this timid and worried guy to do such amazing things for him. And so what talents has God blessed you with today? What treasures have you received? How can you use your time simply not for yourself, but for the benefit and the glory of God and his kingdom today? This morning, I'm going to give you one practical way in which you can put this to use. Start by getting involved even right here in our soul community. That's a starting point. At the Welcome Center, when you come in at the Joy Baskets, there's a Sign Me Up card. It's a green card. We are looking for more people to get involved, to begin to serve, to begin to put what God has put in your hand into practice right here in our community. And so I I can't give you a message without giving you a challenge. Fill out one of these. Leave it in the Joy Basket. Drop it off at the Welcome Center. We would love to have you a part of our team because God has given you so much and, and, and desires for you to put it to use. And so fill out the green card. Text SOUL to the number that's on the screen right now. And just text the word SOUL and we'll get in contact with you and we'll talk with you about this. But then continue even after that to continue uh, to pursue that path of serving and using whatever gifts, talents, opportunities, finances, anything that God's blessed you with and begin leveraging them and investing them to their full potential. That's what the parable teaches us. Because all of that blessing is really just a picture of grace this morning. God's grace to you in entrusting you in the first place. And so do you recognize the amazing grace that God has given you? And how can you respond to that today? Here's what I do know. God's grace is distributed among the saints. And the question isn't how much you've been given, but the greater question is this, is what are you doing with what you've been given? Are you investing back into the kingdom? I'll leave you with that question this morning. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word this morning. I thank you, Lord, that it has the power, Lord, to judge the attitudes and thoughts of our hearts. And bring us into full understanding. And so God I pray that you would just speak to each one of us this morning. In your own way. May it not be guilt. May it not be uh, any kind of human uh, persuasion. But Lord would you speak to us Holy Spirit. And lead us into ways. In which we can put everything that you've given us. All the grace you've shown us. Back into action Lord. And we can invest it Lord God. For the furthering of your kingdom. And so bless each one today. Thank you for each person in this room. And I pray that you would just speak to our hearts, that you would draw us closer to you. And Father, help us to be people who would never take talent and bury it. But people, Lord, who would invest it back into your kingdom and into those around us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. God bless. Let's stand. In ancient times, the one who blessed did so by extending hands, and those who want to receive a blessing did likewise. If you'd like to receive a blessing, please extend your hands today. And here it is. God of love and grace, we thank you for hearing our prayers, for speaking to us in your word and encouraging us in our gathering together. Now, would you take us and use us to love and serve you and to serve others? With the time and talent and treasures that you've given us, give us the courage And please guide us in the power of your spirit. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.